This is the story of Carrie Grover, folk singer and fiddler, the keeper of her family's vast repertoire of traditional music that was handed down for at least four generations. From the time she was born in 1879 in rural Nova Scotia, Carrie Spinney Grover was immersed in traditional song and tunes. She was the youngest of nine children in a household where she said someone was always singing. And Carrie began soaking it up from a very early age. This is also my story. My name is Julie Mainstone, and my life intertwined with Carrie's as I traveled across the continent in search of her songs and story. This is my journey of discovering and unearthing the stories and music of one very ordinary family that lived in a time and place that is now long past, and the determination that led Carrie Grover to begin writing down all that she could remember in an effort to preserve it. This is the first in a series of podcasts on the subject, and is intended to present an overview of her life and music. Subsequent podcasts will delve into much greater detail, and you'll follow along with me as I discover more and more about Grover's and her ancestors' lives, their music, and the historical context in which it all played out. The Carrie Grover Project has been many years in the making, but it all began when I was searching the public library shelves for traditional material to sing and perform. I'd carted off armloads of songbooks over the months when one day I stumbled upon a book entitled A Heritage of Songs by Carrie B. Grover. I had never heard of Carrie Grover before, but I was immediately intrigued as I turned the pages and learned that all of the 140 songs contained within had been sung by members of her own family, the Spinneys and the Longs. It was their personal repertoire, and it spanned four generations. There were Irish ballads from her great-grandfather and Scottish and English songs from her great-grandmother, who'd all arrived in Nova Scotia in the late 1700s. Some songs had come from the inn her great-grandfather had built in 1811 on a long, lonely road that ran between the port towns of Chester and Windsor. Her father's grandfather reportedly had arrived from Wales in the early 1800s with a batch of Robin Hood songs, though only one could be recalled. And Carrie's father, George Spinney, who in his sailing years traveled to ports along the northeastern seaboard, and brought home sea shanties and songs of shipwrecks he'd learned from other sailors on board, as well as slave songs he'd heard the Africans singing on the wharves of Virginia. It was said that Carrie's Aunt Mary Spinney, born in 1810, could sing all day at the spinning wheel and never sing the same song twice. Many songs were handed down from her, including Arthur McBride, the song Paul Brady made famous in the 1970s. He'd learned it from the songbook, A Heritage of Songs, and sang it note for note exactly how it was written. Oh, me and me cousin one Arthur Mike Bright As we went walking down by the seaside Now mark what followed and what did betide For it being on Christmas morning out for recreation we went on a tram 
And he met Sergeant Upper and Corporal Bump And a little waiter rummer intending to camp For the day being pleasant and charming Good morning, good morning, the sergeant did cry And the same to you gentlemen, and we did reply Intending no harm, but meant to pass by For it being on Christmas morning But says he, my fine fellows, if he will enlist It's ten guineas in gold that will slip in your fist And a crown and the bargain for to kick up in the dust and drink the king's health in the morning. For a soldier, he leads a very fine life, and he always is blessed with the charming young wife, and he pays all his debts without sorrow or strife, and always lives pleasant and charming. And a soldier, he always is decent and clean In the finest of clothing he's constantly seen While other poor fellows were dirty and mean And sup on thin gruel in the morning Says Arthur, I wouldn't be proud of your clothes For you've only the land of them, as I suppose And you dare not change them one night For you know if you do, you'll be flogged in the morning And although that we are single and free We take great delight in our own company And we have no Strange faces to see Although the giraffes are charming And we have no desire to take your advance All hazards and dangers we far to run chance For you would have no scruples For to send us to France Where we would get shot without warning Sergeant, I'll have no such chat And I neither will take it from spalpeen or brat For if you insult me with one other word I'll cut off your heads in the morning And then Arthur and I, we soon drew our hearts And we scarce gave them time for to turn all their own blades The trusty shillelagh Heads and bad and take that is fair warning. And their old rusty rapiers and hung by their side, we flung this 
far as we could in the tide. Now take them out, devils, right Arthur McBride, and temper the rage in the morning. And the little weeds around her, we flattened his pal, and we made a football of his rowdy dodo. Through it in the tide, far to rock and to roll, and bad at the tedious returning. And we haven't no money, paid them off in cracks, and we paid no respect to their two bloody backs. We lathered them there like a pair of wet sacks And left them for dead in the morning And so to conclude and to finish disputes We obligingly asked that they wanted recruits For we were the lads who would give them hard clothes And bid them look sharp in the morning Within the tattered blue cloth covers of this songbook were murder ballads, broken token songs, songs of betrayal, and unrequited love. And while many titles were familiar, the melodies themselves were strikingly different from other versions found in the well-known maritime collections. Once I began researching the music, I realized that a good many songs in A Heritage of Songs had never before appeared in print anywhere, and I realized that I was holding something very special indeed. But a heritage of songs isn't just melody and verse. It's brimming with stories steeped in historical context, stories of the individual people who sang these songs, the lives and circumstances of Grover's own ancestors. Carrie Grover's words leapt off the page at me, and I was hooked. For example, she tells of how her great-grandfather's sister was singing while milking a cow on her parents' farm when soldiers trotted past and stopped to listen, then paid her in gold for her song and of how her grandfather was forbidden to sing a certain Irish political song, but did so anyway to amuse his friends when he thought he was out of earshot of his father, only to receive a crack on the head from his father's cane. When Carrie and her siblings were too slow digging up potatoes, her father sang a work song he'd learned from slaves in the South. Page after page were tales and anecdotes of everyday, normal, hard-working people set in rural Nova Scotia in the 1800s. It was like looking through a family scrapbook laced in melody. I was moved by Carrie Grover's efforts to preserve her family's music, and for that I wanted to thank her, so I decided to do a little digging. I began by calling Gould Academy in Bethel, Maine. 
Gould Academy is a private boarding school today, but in 1896, it was the only high school for miles around. Carrie attended during her junior year, when she was 17 after the family had left Nova Scotia. Years later, in 1954, at age 75, Carrie returned to Gould to work with the music teacher Anne Griggs, who painstakingly notated each of the 140 songs that would appear in the songbook. I asked Gould Academy if they knew anything about this Carrie Grover, and I explained about the songbook and the reason for my interest. They were so taken by my story that they took it upon themselves to locate a relative of Carrie's, and by the end of the next day I was speaking with Carrie's granddaughter, Callie Colby. And it is at Gould Academy where Callie has recorded a segment for this podcast. She reads from the introduction to A Heritage of Songs, her grandmother's own words. She is the voice of Carrie Grover. In my home, the singing of songs and ballads seemed a part of our daily lives. Mother always sang at her work, melancholy songs or gay songs according to her mood or just a humming of the tune without any words. Often in the evening before the lamp was lighted, as father sat with his elbows on his knees, his pipe held between his hands after his evening smoke, he would start singing and mother would join him, the steady click of her knitting needle sounding like a sort of accompaniment. Sometimes they would walk to a neighbor's house to spend an evening, and then we youngsters would play grown-ups and sing the songs we had heard our elders sing, often not knowing in the least what we were singing about, and miscalling many of the words. Because I could sing any song I heard before I could talk, my elders found it very amusing to teach me songs and hear me struggle with the pronunciation of the words. In the little town in Nova Scotia where I was born and where I lived until I was 12 years old, almost everyone sang or tried to sing these old songs and ballads. Neighbors were few and far between, books and magazines were scarce, and we had to make the best of what we had. In all our little neighborhood gatherings, pairing bees and old-time dances, the singing of a few songs was a part of every evening's entertainment. Often a singer knew only one song which he was asked to sing on every occasion. If anyone had learned a new song, he was asked to sing it everywhere he went till everyone had learned it. If a stranger came to the house or to one of our neighborhood gatherings, it was considered a breach of good manners not to ask him to sing. The result was not always a happy one, for so many people tried to sing who could not even carry a tune, or as one old fellow expressed it, carried it away but dropped it before he got very far. Unfortunately, these singers did not always pick up their tunes where they dropped them, but wandered on and off the tune from beginning to end. My interest in the collection only increased, so eventually I took a year off from my teaching job in order to devote myself to the many aspects of the project. I won a grant from the Helen Crichton Folklore Society and traveled from my home in Seattle to Nova Scotia and Maine, intending to follow in the footsteps of the Spinney Long families, Carrie's maternal and paternal ancestors, and to try to piece together a story. I journeyed to a small lake called Sunken Lake near Wolfville, Nova Scotia, where Carrie was born and raised alongside her siblings and cousins, and from where many of the stories of her young life in a rural farming community come from. 
I poked around the site where the Spinney family home had once stood, now reduced to weeds and grass, and walked the road that wound around the lake to the Long's home, where I'd been invited to attend a luncheon hosted by some of the descendants of the Spinney and Long families. We sat at a large round kitchen table in a home set near the lake shore. Through the woods of white trunk trees, I could see the lake and whispers of trails leading to it. These were the very paths Carrie had walked upon, the setting for her childhood tales. The people who gathered for the luncheon were as excited to meet me as I was them. They'd long been interested in the region's history and even held a Carrie Grover Day every fall. They had loads of information, but interestingly enough, they'd only recently seen a copy of the songbook. At the end of our visit, they gave me a 67-page memoir. In it were all the family stories Carrie could remember as told to her daughter Ethel, who typed them into a booklet. It was dripping with detail of her life here at Sunken Lake, surrounded by family and song. She told of her father's seafaring days and his sawmill on the Little River, and how he trapped and hunted game, foxes, rabbits, and even bears. She recalled her mother singing at her spinning wheel, and the clothes they'd made from cloth they'd spun, then dyed using the colors extracted from plants and bark. And detailed descriptions of how they washed their clothes at water's edge, and how they made soap from lye and ash and summer hats from grass. She tells of her brothers who left home to work in the lumber camps of the Northeast and returned with new songs, and sisters who cared for her, played with her, and sang with her. And she tells of the music, of who sang which song, and how the younger children imitated the older singers in style and mannerism, and how you couldn't sing a song that rightfully belonged to someone else. She described evening gatherings where neighbors and friends came together to sing and fiddle and dance. Carrie had thrown open a window, allowing us to see the daily comings and goings of a typical family living in an isolated settlement during the 1800s. Carrie went on to tell of the pranks they played on one another, like how her brother Anson had found a frozen fox while out checking traps and set it up on a log to fool his father into thinking it was alive and one brother tricking another into thinking he'd stuffed his mouth with something delicious, luring him to try some, when it was a square of newly formed soap. Carrie described the interior of her home built by her father with timber felled from the surrounding woods and planked at his sawmill. She described the layout of the rooms upstairs and down, the handmade chairs and hook rugs, and the dried strips of apple and pumpkin that hung from the rafters. It was palpable. There was so much detail, I even knew what they ate for breakfast and supper. On the last page of the memoir, Carrie told of their leaving their home in Sunken Lake in 1892 when she was 12, and her father had lost his sawmill, his primary means of income. Meanwhile, Carrie's older brother Jim had purchased land in the township of Newry, near Bethel, Maine, and her father George had gone on ahead to help build the house in the summer of 1892. I found the site of that home they built. The impressions of its foundation are still there in the grass. It sat not far from the banks of the Sunday River. In a small book of local history, I found a picture of the Spinney family seated in front of that two-story house with a horse and cart in the background. Her father George is easily recognizable, standing at the back with his stooped shoulders, long beard, and straw hat. 
the one his wife Eliza probably made him before he left Nova Scotia. In Bethel, I met Carrie's granddaughter Callie in person, in the parish hall of her church on the outskirts of Bethel. We talked a long while about the songbook and of her family, and when we'd finished, she sent me off in my car to the nearby township of Mason, where Carrie had lived with her husband and children in the early 1900s. I drove through miles of woods on a winding road and stopped at Mason Cemetery. As I pulled in, a large white pickup truck pulled up behind me, and an old but very spry woman stepped from the truck, walked straight up to me, and asked if I was there for the funeral. I said, no, I'm looking for the Spinney family. Oh, she said, they're buried over there in the back. There I found the blackened tombstones of Carrie's parents, Eliza and George. By this time in my research, I knew a lot about these two, and it was like meeting old friends. It was down in Cupid's garden. I knelt down beside Eliza's tombstone and softly sang Prentice Boy, a song she had begged Carrie to never forget, as it was one of the old ones that had been passed down from Carrie's great-grandmother. I hoped that somehow Eliza knew that her old songs were being resurrected, and in doing so, her wishes were being carried out. And in secret they were talking, for he was all her joy. I went back to talk with this 93-year-old woman who coincidentally was there that day in the cemetery. Her name was Ina Grover. She was a distant relative of Carrie's, and she'd come to get the flowers ready for the burial of her sister the following day. She told me she had known Carrie. I was so stunned to meet someone who had actually known Carrie Grover that I ran to my car and returned with a picture of Carrie taken in 1946. She was wearing a long dark dress and playing the fiddle. Ina recognized the picture instantly and said she was there when it was taken. It was a 50th wedding anniversary party for Carrie and her husband, and she remembered Carrie playing her fiddle that day and Carrie's sister lifting her skirt to dance an Irish jig. Back at my desk in Seattle, things just kept trickling in. A copy of a land grant from 1811, archived newspaper articles, land deeds, baptismal records, a relative who had some pictures that shed more light on things, batches of letters Carrie wrote to her cousin Bessie back in Nova Scotia when she couldn't remember the words to a song, letters to both Alan Lomax and Helen Crichton, also a diary written by Carrie's 15-year-old daughter Ethel in 1915, reminding all of us to take heed, for our lives, too, could be told from the perspective of a teenager. And Ethel doesn't disappoint. After the deaths of her parents, Carrie began to realize the significance of their old songs. Clearly, the songs would die out with the next generation. None of her children knew or ever sang the songs. They were more interested in the radio and Victrola. But Carrie still loved to sing the family songs, and she performed at folk festivals in Boston and Philadelphia, as well as at a local folk song club near her home in Gorham, Maine. She came to the attention of song collectors Eloise Hubbard-Linscott, Sidney Robertson-Cowell, and Alan Lomax. In the early 1940s, at the age of 62, Carrie began recording her songs with each one of them. It was during this time that she began in earnest to write down all the songs she could remember. When I wrote to the Library of Congress of my interest in Carrie Grover, 
They referred to her as the star of their collection and were happy to share all that they had in connection to her. They sent me hours of recordings of songs and fiddle tunes, and the collection of songs grew. There were also recordings of conversations between song collector Alan Lomax and Carey in the spring of 1941, as well as letters and photographs. Here she talks with Lomax about learning a tune from her father when she was a child. My father was not an observing man, and all of a sudden we were together, and he started out singing that. He sang a couple of verses of it, and these two first verses is what he sang. And you never forgot that? <laughs> no, we had such a laugh over it. I never heard it before in a sense. And you mean you learned those two verses in that one repetition? Well, yes. How did you do it? I, mean, I, never, I couldn't learn a song that fast. Why, it's on account of the tune. The words fitted into it. And you remembered it, words and tune, from that yes. one repetition. I remember those first uh, uh, two verses. Come all you pretty fair maids who flourish in your prime. Be sure to keep your garden clear. Let no man steal your time. Time, let no man steal your time. When I was young and in my prime, I flourished like a vine. There came along a young man and stole away my time. Time and stole away my time. Carrie's ability to recall a tune from just one listen kept this body of music alive. Her gift of retention was ultimately the saving grace of the collection. I believe it was during this time with Lomax and the other song collectors that she first conceived of creating a songbook. Her letters to Lomax stated such, as do her flurry of letters to Cousin Bessie back at Sunken Lake, asking if they could recall a particular verse. Carrie had no trouble remembering the melodies. It was the words she needed help with. In 1955, Grover published her songbook, A Heritage of Songs, through Gould Academy. It was later reprinted in 1973 by Norwood Publications. It is now long out of print, with fewer than eight copies available in public libraries worldwide. I was forever sending out queries, questioning people at folk clubs and historical societies, persistently digging for more information on Carrie and her family. I wrote to the Louise Carey Folk Club in Gorham, Maine, where I knew Carey had sung in the 1940s, asking if they had any information on her. Soon after, a floppy manila envelope arrived on my doorstep. Inside was a 99-page, unpublished manuscript Carey had written 18 months before her death. The music was notated on handwritten staff lines, on squares of cardboard that had been scotch-taped above type lyrics. It was a relic and an incredible find. And the collection of music grew again. At this point in time, the body of music contains 243 songs, 47 fiddle tunes, and a detailed historical narrative of the Spinney and Long families that traces the lineage of singers and songs. I have become the steward of this music, as if Carrie herself passed an invisible baton, handing me the responsibility of preserving her family's most precious possession. My goal is to make every effort to ensure its preservation. 
and to make it accessible to others, so as to pass it along to generations of music makers. To that end, I'll close this podcast with a recording of folk song duo Anna and Elizabeth and their version of Adieu to Aaron, the song Carrie heard her mother sing at a final gathering in their home on the eve of their departure from Nova Scotia in 1892. In the next episode, I'll turn my attention to the early 1800s to Carrie's great-grandparents, and some of the first immigrants in the family lineage. Happy.